Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Conquest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Talkhouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got a couple of singers who've devoted themselves in slightly different ways to keeping traditional music alive. Shirley Collins and Rady Pete. Now, Collins is 88 and she's had a pretty strange and incredible career. She started performing traditional songs in the mid-1950s and she notably left England in 1959 to travel the United States with Alan Lomax, recording songs and singers in Appalachia and elsewhere that may otherwise have been lost to history. She recorded some incredibly influential records in the 60s and 70s with Davy Graham and separately with her sister Dolly Collins, and then Shirley left music entirely. It wasn't until the 2000s that unlikely underground musicians would coax her back to performing. British apocalyptic folk industrial band Current 93 were the first, strangely, but it wasn't until 2014, 38 years after her last album, that Collins made a new one, and it was gorgeous and well-received. She's since released a couple more, all for the hip Domino label, fitting for someone who's been so quietly influential. Her latest is Archangel Hill. Check out a little bit of Hairs on the Mountain from that album right here. Oh, Sally, my dear, it's you I'd be kissing. Oh, Sally, my dear, it's you I'd be kissing. She smiled and replied, you don't know what you're missing. Now, Rady Pete, singer for Lancome, is one of the many musicians who've been deeply influenced by Collins and by the traditional songs that Collins helped to keep alive. But while Lancome is definitely part of the folk tradition, they modernize the sound in wildly interesting ways. Their fourth and latest album is called False Lancome, and I love this quote about it from Mojo magazine. If modern folk music needs its own OK computer, its own Dark Side of the Moon, or indeed its own F-sharp, A-sharp, Infinity, this may well be it. That last album referenced, in case you don't recognize it, is the debut from Godspeed You Black Emperor. If that all sounds intriguing, you'll probably love it. Oh, and the album was recently shortlisted for the prestigious Mercury Prize. Here's a little bit of Go Dig My Grave from False Lancome. Now, Pete describes this conversation as fangirling, though I'm not sure that's entirely fair. There's definitely some mutual admiration happening here. Collins still keeps up with music, and she loves Lancome. They talk about Collins' adventures in America with Alan Lomax, about other singers they admire, and how they share a pretty strong hatred for jazz. Enjoy. I saw you a few years ago as part of the festival, I guess. Lankham was at St George's Church in Kemptown in Brighton. Yeah. And it was a wonderful evening, and I wanted to come up and say hello afterwards. There's such a crowd around you wanting to talk to you. We thought to just to leave it, and here we are meeting now, so that's fantastic. Yeah, I wish you had come and said hello, because no matter what the crowd, I think uh, me and all all the lads from Lancome would have loved to meet you. Me and Dara are probably your biggest fans, I think. Uh, um, I don't know if you've heard, me and Dara have shamelessly ripped off you and Davy Graham. And it's not on an album, but we do. We sing Hairs in the Mountain exactly like we literally tried to copy the guitar <laughs> part exactly. We loved it so much. 
It was fantastic working with Davey, of course. Um, you know, he was a sheer genius. Yeah, it seems like it. Like he, um, like kind of crazy ability. And also it seems like he just changed everything every time. Mm. Like it was different every time. Yes, that's right. Was he easy to work with or was it? It was most of the time. Remember we were recording um, and practicing. It was easy to it was easy to work with. Yeah, one or two incidents when we we had I think four or five concerts after we made the album. Yeah, and we had one concert in North London and we met at Kings Cross Station. He wouldn't catch the same train as me. He said he couldn't do that. So it wasn't the best start to the evening, really. No. <laughs> I mean, he, he would just have strange little moods suddenly. Yeah. And obviously all this sort of got worse the older he got. But on the whole, he was really a lovely person, very intelligent. And in those days, you know, there was the accompaniments that we were playing were really quite dull, quite ordinary. Yeah. And as I say, David just came along and started a whole new new way of playing yeah like almost like a new genre within it as well mm, yeah absolutely and um yeah like him and Bert Yanch I suppose probably sparked like an entire generation of a different way of playing guitar and stuff yeah no I so it sounds like it musically it gelled always though then because I always wondered about that album the folk roots new roots I because it seems like they were kind of you know separate separate ideas or entities that came together perfectly you know what I mean like but I wonder did it feel like that to you maybe you had the same maybe you knew exactly what you both wanted from the start or maybe there was like a compromise well I can only ever sing as I sing I can't sing in the other way um so yeah. I was just had to sing my songs the way I sing the songs David just Set the accompaniments. Yeah. And it was, it was really brilliant to sing against, you know, it, was, it sort of energised you. It's like someone weaving something around yeah. you, you know. Yeah, it's very delicate. And the funny thing is, Rady, I think it was one of the bigger studios or the EMI studio. We were so far apart in a huge room. Oh, yeah. We perched on the stool, which is the least easy way of singing, I think. And Davy seemed like miles away at the other end, and yet somehow it just felt, you know, when when I listened to it, it felt that we were so close. Yeah, it sounds like you're just sitting beside each other, but yeah, yeah I know that experience of sometimes it can feel <laughs> a bit strange when you go into studios to record and they want to put these baffles between you so that the sound doesn't bleed into yeah. the microphones. <laughs> And especially, I think, for folk musicians, usually you're just kind of used to sitting in a room together, you know, and just like all your practices are just like singing together. I find that strange sometimes. It took me a long time to get used to doing gigs on stages with microphones as well because of that, because everything sounds kind of different. My least favourite part of doing concerts is the sound check. Yes, same. I can't I stand it. <laughs> I hear myself and think, oh, God, am I going to run now? They're like the work part of it, I think. You know, I think traveling to the gig and the sound checks is the work part, and then yes. the actual concert is usually the fun part for me, anyway. That's right, of course. So, have the most fantastic voice I've ever heard since. Well, I'm sure a lot of people have told you you do remind them a bit of Margaret Barry. Well, that's a big compliment. I love, I love her singing. Yeah, and I actually, I have a real. Um, kind of soft spot for a lot of the traveler women singing yes. because I think I just love the style and Mary Delaney and Maggie Barry and 
uh, Rosie Stewart, this kind of, it's just really strong and clear, it's you know. so direct, isn't it, as well? It's so direct, exactly. Yeah. So direct, the singing. I actually saw uh, in London at the Festival Hall, which concert, which put on, I think, by the English Folk Songs and Song Society, and Margaret was one of the, the guests, the singers. Oh, yeah. And she just the place by storm. You know, she came, strode on stage, with her hair flying, you know, her lovely ropes of black hair, her banjo, and she just stood there and sang and played her banjo in this not very beautiful way. I'd never heard anything like it. Yeah. And, and, and it was wonderful. Love to have heard her sing in real life, just in a room, you know. Though it feels like, like it feels like I have, because, you know, when you get to listen to it, that's the thing about recordings of people they still feel really intimate, even if they're like have been recorded like yeah, that's true. forty years prior. Like you feel like you know the person. That's why it's quite strange for me to to chat to you now in real life because I feel like I've spent quite a lot of time with you because I've spent so much time listening to your voice. Yes, yeah. Uh, it's you're a straightforward singer as well. Yeah. I think that's why I might be drawn to your singing also, though, is that it's quite, I like straightforward singing, you know, I think when t- there's too many uh, embellishments or frills on it, I find it a bit distracting from the story or something, or it distracts me from whatever the emotions in the yes. song are. A lot of the young singers, um, especially, they think they have to over-decorating songs. We don't decorate much you know it's, it's more straightforward than that yeah I think that that might be a shyness as well though I think people worry about their voice being good and I think if you can just get over the fact <laughs> and not worry about whether it's good you know what I mean but it doesn't have to sound nice you know then maybe it'll just sound honest that applies to you I think it applies to me yeah a kind of um yeah direct or honest I think is a good way of saying it but I think it's also maybe deciding that because my my feeling on it would be that if a song is really good, it kind of speaks for itself. Yes. You don't need to do much to it, really. Like if you've found a really good song. Sing it straightforwardly. Yeah. It usually hits the mark the less you try squeeze stuff out of it. or You know what I mean? You always sung this way. Um, pretty, pretty much. Yeah. Like I, when I was, um, about 12, I met a Shano singer who definitely really influenced me. She's the same age as me. We were in the same class in school. Her name's, uh, Roisin Chambers. And she sang like proper Shano's, uh, kind of Connemara style Shano's in Irish. And, uh, she taught me how to do, you know, the, the ornaments, the little kind oh, of, yes, uh, Shano's the ornaments. <laughs> And uh, I just thought she was the most brilliant singer and I, I listened to her a lot. Uh, that's maybe where I got an interest in folk song from or like traditional songs. Because honestly, before then, I was just really obsessed with Nina Simone and I used to <laughs> sing along with her all the time. But I do think I always sang like this. One of my sisters sings and she sounds extremely like me. We, our voices are very alike. And I think they sound quite like our speaking voices, actually, as well. Yes. Um. Because one of the things I always try to do is I do always try sing in my own accent, which actually I was I was wanted to ask you about this because you love Appalachian versions, too. And so do I. Good. And I always sing them in a Dublin accent and really like confuse everyone. And they always think that they're Irish versions. But I 
have gotten some of my Appalachian versions actually from you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're singing them in an English accent. What? So you obviously <laughs> have that same idea of like, you just sing it in your own accent. You have to, otherwise it sounds like steeped of something. It sounds so false. Um, I, I sort of fell in love with Appalachian songs and ballads. Right from the minute I first heard the Kentucky singer, Gene Ritchie. Oh, I fell in love with it. And when I first went to London, I had to, um, I was 18 and I knew I wanted to be a singer. But I had to get a job. I got a job in a bookshop in Hampstead, 32 shillings a week, my salary. And two volumes of Cecil Sharp's Dish Folk Songs from the Southern Appalachians, yeah, 32 shillings and six. I spent the whole of my first week's wages on the two books, and it was the best money I ever spent in my life because oh, there's so many versions of, of the ballads, you know, so different words and names of the he collected from. It was, it was just, I mean, I, I got into trouble with Ewan McCall because he thought I was just a silly girl, you know, <laughs> silly about Appalachian ballads. Well, why? When you go through, well, why? Because he was mean. So when oh. you go through the, <laughs> when you go through the book, I mean, the, the variation in the words, and the melodies, just fabulous, and they're so so complete. Some of them as well. Some of the language in them is almost more modern as well. Some of them sound like they could be modern. You know what I mean? But they're. I found that easier to connect with maybe some of the wording in the Appalachian versions. And I love their melodies. Oh, that's interesting. I really love the melodies because I also love like old time tunes, you know, like uh, fiddle and banjo playing. Because right. I play uh, traditional Irish tunes, which is like, obviously they're related, but there's really different qualities to the tunes, the American tunes that I, um, I find really interesting. And actually with Lancome, again, like we, people often say to us like, um, you know, oh, that Irish reel at the end is really great. And it's like, <laughs> and it's it not an Irish reel, <laughs> you know. Uh, I think we're just, we confuse everybody because there's Scottish songs, there's American songs, there's yeah. American tunes, you know, and obviously it's all because of our accents and maybe the way we present it, you know. And then even the instruments, like we use like harmoniums and, um, you know, like they're not all, I think we get uh, maybe misinterpreted as being Irish, but actually we're very like, because we've been influenced by that's the thing like we've been influenced by uh, the likes of Jean Ritchie or mm-hmm. like the likes of you know obviously the Watersons, Swan Arcade, you, yeah. Frankie Armstrong, A.L. Lloyd, like all of these people. You know, and it's kind of you as you hear all these recordings, you start building up a kind of your repertoire of songs. You know, and then also the older singers that we hang around with in Ireland and the likes of the Golian, um singing circle and the night before Larry got stretched and stuff and you're just exposed to all of these different versions you know mm. that are just kind of being sang and re-sang or whatever and I think that really the idea of like national borders becomes more and more ridiculous the more you spend time listening to all the different songs you know right. and you realize that there's just the versions just go all over the world. I spent a year in America and recorded some songs from people in Arkansas Virginia, sing some of the songs that I noted from them. And we, you know, that's part of the band. We do mostly English songs, most and most of the music is Morris dance tunes because we have Morris dancers on stage with us, so that we have the same repertoire of, of you know the Anglo 
American songs and tunes and the purely English tunes. That's what we stick to, because English got a great heritage. And so these musicians, are they playing tunes that you remember recording in Arkansas? Yes. In fact, on the latest CD, we what's the tune called? A tune that I recorded from two fiddle players in Virginia. They were old men in their 70s, although now that I'm 86, 70 seems quite young. (laughs) (laughs) And they played this wonderful tune. We've got that on the album. Um, I just wanted, and I sing a couple of songs from Made a Riddle, the Arkansas singer as well, because versions were so wonderful. I just felt I had the right to sing them because I'd actually them direct from her as well. Well, that's it. Like, because I'm actually surprised to hear that you had gotten some American versions from the books that you bought in the bookshop. Because uh, I had assumed that you'd kind of come across most of them in that year. So that was you were traveling around with Alan Lomax. Yes. Yeah. For a whole year recording people. No, we were only on the recording trip of two and a half months. Um, yeah. All the other time was spent preparing for it, trying to get money together to do it. Record companies kept backing out of it. And then finally, the Ertigan brothers said, yes, we'll do it. And they gave Alan $2,000, which was going to last for almost three months. And it almost lasted. We got back to New York for about 50 cents. I mean, truly. Really? There were no credit cards in those days. No, no way of getting money. That's kind of amazing. It's also amazing to hear that it was hard to get money off people. Like, So obviously no one had any idea how important those recordings were going to be. No. It's crazy. So it's only because yous were like approaching people and trying to get this money and then putting in all this time that like when you think of the amount of material that would have just not been recorded and have potentially died out unless it was handed down directly. Yes. You know? Because this is the thing about, you know, let's say for someone my age coming to traditional song and tunes and all this kind of stuff, like all of those field recordings are, if they weren't made, you know what I mean? You know, like that. And also, also the recordings made in the 60s and 70s by the likes of you, that is also source material for someone like me. You know what I mean? And it's also part of how you learn about the tradition and different versions, you know, are also these albums that are made. But like without the field recordings and the same for some of our Irish collectors here as well, the likes Tom Munley and stuff like, you know, really there would be songs that would have died out and I'm not sure, like, now they, it seems real obvious that, like, obviously this was an important and necessary thing to do, but I don't think anyone really realised how important it was, you know, and maybe it should still be happening. Well, I'm not sure how much many people in countryside, for instance, are still singing songs as they once did. Yeah. Um, just a wrote in a book of songs that Vaughan Williams had collected this is in 1902. He feared, he said, steamroller commercial music would knock all this out. It would be lost forever. And look, I mean, honestly, how much was lost? I mean, a great deal of stuff was, was found and recorded. And thank God it was, because yeah. imagine how dull life would be without a lot of these songs. Oh, absolutely. There'd be so many singers and musicians that wouldn't be doing what they're doing now, you know, if they hadn't come across these recordings and it like literally, you know, would change people's lives. 
Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the Talk House podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of the Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. They also make it easy to upload lyrics and metadata and to track your earnings and share them with your bandmates and co-writers. You can even snap on extras like Instant Share, which allows for easy collaboration. The DistroKid app makes it all a seamless experience that will save you a ton of time that would be better spent making music. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Head over to the App Store to download it. All bands and artists have jobs, right? Jobs they do like, others they don't. Times they're fucked up and they've had to face the boss with rosy cheeks and the tails between their legs. 101 Part-Time Jobs is the podcast where we hear those stories. I've had some killer guests on, like The Chisel, Chastity Belt, Real Estate, Kurt Vile, Mannequin Pussy, and so many more. If you subscribe to 101 Part-Time Jobs podcast, you'll be getting two episodes weekly. That's a promise. See you soon. That it was Ellen Lomax who discovered Margaret Berry. No, this... Yes, he was collected quite a lot in Ireland with Sean O'Boyle. Okay. And so he heard her singing somewhere just on the street, was it? Yeah, it was on the street. He could only hear the voice. He walked round the corner and there she stood with her banjo and she was singing to the wall so that the voice would bounce off the wall and reverberate through the other streets. So she'd she'd, be able to take her background and get a bit more of a collection. And of course, he was, you know, utterly, utterly knocked out and so thrilled. Because she's got that amazing, she's such a loud voice, and it has to have been from trying to make it travel as far as possible. Yeah. Out on the road and against the banjo. Yes. That's mad. So she, yeah, he must have been delighted. That's the thing, when you find people like that, you know, and and if he hadn't recorded her, you know, like then if everyone else doesn't get to hear that. Can you imagine life without knowing Margaret Barry, her songs? Yeah. Yeah. One thing in when I was in America, Rady, that yeah. was really lovely is that I knew a lot of English versions of the ballads that they were singing to me. Yeah. When I sang them back to them, really surprised that you know, that I knew them, that the ballads survived in England. Um, and one woman said to me on hearing my accent, she said, where are you from, young lady? I said, but I'm from England. She said, what, England over the water? <laughs> yeah. So, and many people, well, not a great many, but some families had fiddles that they had come over with their forebears as well. And yeah. so the music was still being played, gradually changing. Yeah, and it is interesting how it changed as well. And I find then, you know, if you have, let's say, a version from England or Scotland, you know, and then if you were singing that version to them, sometimes if you put them together, you get more bits of the story, you know, because I find some versions, it's like <laughs> there must be bits missing because you're like, this doesn't make sense. Like, why, why did they kill them? Or like, why are they, you know, why do they have to go into exile or, you know what I mean? Sometimes there's kind of holes in the plot. 
Though some you're allowed to fill in the gap. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes the songs with the gaps are more fascinating as you might know. I've found when I go and I find out and I fill in the gap, I still prefer the version where you can't tell what's going on. My number one one for this was you know the song Katie Cruel. Yes. And I traced it back about the licked Bob licked Bob's lassie, I think it is, and like basically fig- like figured out from the older versions what she had done and why she was so, you know, right. ostracized or whatever. Mm. And it just wasn't as interesting as anything I was imagining when I was <laughs> hearing the song, you know. I should have left her have her mystique, you know. Well, yes, there's a good thing to say to that. Yeah. Um, now, Lankham, is it a version of the song Lincoln is it named or is Lank what does Lankham mean to you? Oh like long lank long Lankham. Yeah, it's that from, song, that ballad, yeah. It is from that ballad, but it's it, the ballad as sang by uh, John O'Reilly. Right. Yeah. His version is called Lankham. Right. Basically. False Lankham. The, the title of the song is False Lankham. We might record the song at some point. I think it has about twenty one verses. Well, I wish you would. It's a fabulous ballad. We've got some um, versions that were collected in Sussex, and I sing one of them. Is that Lambkin? No, Is it's, it called it's No, it's called Lincoln. Oh, okay. He's out to get revenge because he hasn't been paid for the work he's done. Yeah. He's a mason and he hasn't been paid. He wants yeah. revenge. It is such a gruesome ballad. Do they, do they murder the baby? And yes, yes, and the daughter. Oh gosh, yeah, it's wonderful. In our version, there's there's, there's bowls of blood. They like yes. they fill up bowls yeah. of blood. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it, it's you have to sing it as it is. You can't define that story at all. You know, oh, it's no, one like of my that. absolute favourites, and it was sung by a gamekeeper not too many miles from where I live. Oh wow! And collected by Copper in the 1950s. Yeah, and I remember Bob saying that when he collected it. He was thrilled because it was such a rare ballad. You hardly ever heard it. Yeah. And then a few days' time, further along the, the countryside, he recorded another version from another chap and and said to him, oh, I've just heard that from Ned Butcher. And his mum is furious. He said, no, nobody else sings that. <laughs> That's oh. my ballad. Yeah. Possession. Yeah. So important to some people. I love that because I feel possessive about songs, you know, so a lot of them. Well, also, when you think about it, that's the only way they actually can survive is generations of people have to feel personally enough about it to learn yes. all of the words and sing it around in public for their lives. And then other people have to hear them doing that to yes. learn them. So everyone has to kind of really personalize it. And that's, you know, like it, it has to be like one of your songs that you yes. sing. Then, I, it, it's quite a personal thing collecting, like building your repertoire of songs you want to sing. I'd love to, one day I must sort of sit down and write a list of all the songs I know. I think it would run into... It might be a very long list, would it? It would be a long list, I think. <laughs> and the lovely thing, right, is I don't forget them. Yeah. Words. And partly because nowadays if I don't sleep, I just lay in bed singing a song in my head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I always love doing sort of if you singing all night long. Thank God I've just got that sort of mind pain that you know, I can walk in the kitchen and forget what I've been in there for. Yeah. Don't forget the words of song. 
I'm over in my parents' house today and um, they started singing. My mom and my sister were singing a song that I used to sing like maybe 15 years ago, which like might not seem that long ago. But to me, like I have a terrible thing and it feels like a very long time ago. And I was kind of, I, it was weird because I, I knew what was coming next, you know, and oh, I I, especially at the moment, I don't sleep very much because I have a young baby. So, you know, like I couldn't even remember the name of the guy, like the man we got called Slankamoff earlier. And it's the name of the band I play in, you know, like that's the kind of memory loss I'm dealing with at the moment. But I could remember all the words. I was just so shocked that it was all still in there. You know, it's a bit like languages as well, though. If you speak another language, you think it's gone. And then when you hear it, it's still all just in there. What other sort of music do you like? Oh, uh, all all kinds. I would say I don't I'm not getting to listen to much new music at the moment. But um, yeah, I, I think I've always kind of been a bit obsessed with music. And like, I wouldn't even say it's a genres thing. Like I, I can I can like pretty much any genre of music, you know, as long as I don't know, there has to be maybe something that connects me to it a bit, you know. The only one I find a little bit difficult is jazz sometimes. Me too. I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course, divorce of my first marriage. Oh, jazz did. Yeah. Oh well, it's a good. It's a good enough reason. Seriously, for <laughs> my husband used to go to jazz clubs all the time. In fact, that's where he met David Graham. I was a oh, bit, okay. This is at first when he brought David home, and I thought, oh, it's going to be all jazz. Um, yeah. No, he loved jazz, and I hated it. Is it so much that one day I threw coffee at the wall because I was so angry because he was. Miles Davis or something, and I just had enough. <laughs> I had to clean up something. So brilliant! No, I, I love Italian. So you you passionately hate jazz, then. That's very interesting, though, because you made an album with David Graham, who is definitely jazz adjacent. You know, I was so wary at first. Yeah, once he starts playing, he knows what he's doing. He does. Yeah, I think he interpreted those melodies. Yeah. You know, he knew what to do, and that's the thing. It's interpreting the melody mm. that that's there. That's, it's not. No, he understood. He understood. I have a big soft spot for um for singing for vocal music. You know, especially harmonies. I really love. That is something I really love. Uh, just you know, human voices singing together in harmony. I find it really emotional. I really love it yeah. because it's kind of maybe one of the simpler forms of music or something. Not that it's simple, but you know what I mean? It's so instantly accessible. There's nothing between you and the person doing it. It's just a human voice. I don't like choirs. You don't like choirs, really? No, I can't hear them. You, so you don't, you don't like harmonies singing together? I like harmonies singing, for instance, um, an Alabama, no, a Meeting, oh, uh, you mean the Sacred Harp? Sacred Harp. Yeah, oh my God, I love that. Yes, the most incredible stuff. That's amazing, it gives me, yeah. It gives me goosebumps just thinking about yeah. it. Yeah. We actually spent four days at one um, 1959. Um, oh, I'd say that sounded amazing. Just amazing. Because yeah. all the people um, come from all over the countryside of, of Alabama join in, so it was a gathering, and they sing with such you know, trill voices, powerful voices. It's just so full of energy and so full of belief. It gives me goosebumps just to remember it. You know? Yeah. Just so fabulous. And I do love listening to that. And also I remember it because I'd come from England where there was still food rationing and uh, we had tables and tables and tables of fried chicken and pies. And oh, wow. 
So it was in 1959, was it? Yeah. I wonder if you went back to those same places now, like how many people of those people's children are singing those I, I think songs, they probably you know? still are, Rady. I'd love and, to think and, they are. So in the, in the you know, what you call the congregation, they sat in a great square on four sides with yeah. different voices at one, sopranos, and they all got kids on their laps, you know, some got babies in their arms. I think those children would just hopefully have soaked right into them and they would love doing yeah. it as well. It's one of the best sounds ever. Um, and I love the way they sit like that, facing each other. Yes. That it's all into each other. Yeah. I think it's no, really, that's absolutely yeah. right. They all get to choose a hymn as well, to get in yeah. the centre to lead it, picking their arm up and down. It's so shrill. As I say, we bumped to remembering how fabulous it was. Yeah. It's a real. Yeah, no, that, that is something I absolutely adore. And uh, one of the the other Lancome uh, people, Cormac McDermott, is he sings a lot of Sacred Harp. Does he? Yeah, he's yeah, um, and a lot of his harmonies he comes up with for Lancome is based off kind of that kind of Sacred Harp feel of harmonies, you know. Fantastic. Um, I don't. I'm not very bad at music theory, to be honest. <laughs> but there's some note that when you hit it, it just sounds like Sacred Harp, and it's just brilliant. Like it's like yeah. It's amazing, their harmonies. I think I, I love the way they do harmonies. Because the white uh, in Kentucky, the other um, church meetings we went to, white settlers in Kentucky still sing in the style of, of Scotland. Um, hymns where the lining hymns where leader, the rector or the priest, um, not the priest, would pull out the first line and they'd repeat it. Oh, okay. So that they were sort of in, instructed, and then they were allowed to join in. And it just oh, like he teaches them the song. It felt sort of cold. And then you get the sacred harp, which is just this great enveloping sound. You just want to live in forever. Really. I would love to just go travelling around America listening to sacred harp uh, singing. To be honest, that sounds like an amazing <laughs> holiday to me. You could sing um, to them. Oh, I wouldn't. I'd be too nervous to sing to them. They're all amazing singers. That's the other thing I love about the um, the Appalachian style of singing, you know, where it's like that's that kind of reminds me, actually, of some of the uh, traveler styles of singing where it's pure. It's all about projection. And I love the thing that they kind of do uh, where it almost sounds like it's a hiccup at the start. I, don't, I can't yes. do it. You know what I mean? Where it kind of it's like they hiccup into the note and then it's just like this big laser beam. Um, like some of the, uh, there's a, a woman who, um, she's about the same age as me, I think, but if you haven't heard her, you should definitely listen to her. Her name's Elizabeth Laprell. Oh, I've heard, yes, I've heard of her. And she's a fantastic singer, like fantastic and all like beautiful Appalachian versions of all the ballads. And, um, she's from a place called Rural Retreat in Virginia, I think. Right. And I met her because she came over to Ireland to be involved in, uh, singing this in a show and singing festival that's on in Donegal but I just was absolutely floored by her, her voice you know it's just incredible um that was definitely part of igniting my uh my obsession with Appalachian versions and um yeah. and singing you know which is ongoing to be honest like even on like I one of the albums on we just made an album last year and uh one of the songs on it is a Gene Ritchie version you know oh um, lovely I think the singers I've gotten the most amount of versions from is Gene Ritchie and you. 
I I sing, I think, three versions of songs that I directly got from recordings of you. And one of them is the first song I ever heard. I, the first time I ever heard you. And I just played it on repeat as soon as I heard it, um, was the version of Bonnie Boy that you did with your sister. Yes. I love the song. I love the, is it a banjo that's playing at the start? Yes. No, it's, it yes, it is. It was my five-string banjo. And that's you playing it? It's me playing it, yes. It's such beautiful banjo playing as well. It's so, I just absolutely adored it. And oh. there's another song you sing about a cherry tree and Jesus that has really... Sing- a cherry tree carol, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just, I just love it. I love singing the banjo. Oh. And then the, but your sister, watch, I think she's playing like a small organ and maybe a cello. It's a, it's a flute organ. Wow. Why do you have to have a little boy with you pumping away at the bellows? Oh, really? So someone has to pump the bellows and somebody else plays the organ? Originally, yes. <laughs> Back in the 17th century. Well, I, I've never even, I've ne- I don't think I've ever even seen one of those in real life. It's, it's very pretty. Well, it explains because I've always tr- wondered, I'm like, what is that sound? It kind of almost sounds like a recorder, but it's not a recorder. To sing against that. Can you it's imagine? Really, it yeah. was just bliss. And Dolly's arrangements were so lovely as well to sing with, you know. I always knew when to come in and she'd write a new arrangement. I always knew when to start. And yeah. we were just so close to sisters anyway. Did you find it easy because you were sisters to just yes. gel? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we were very close and uh, it was it was wonderful working with her. I absolutely adore the work you did with her. It's a big influence on how I think about arranging, actually. Thank you, that's you know, lovely. I, I really I, I really love it. And whenever I recommend you to someone, I always say, first of all, check out <laughs> with her sister, Dolly, because I, I just love it, you know, and I think it's such uh, an unusual approach to arranging. It doesn't sound like anything else from that era. It sounds like its own genre, basically. Um, to agree with that she loved songs as much as I did and and understood them as well you know it's a question of understanding the music and you know say where it comes from yeah but it suits the songs as well it's like I think Bonnie Boy sounds like it's underwater or something it sounds <laughs> like an underwater world or you know in space or something that's a, that's a first <laughs> yeah that's just what I don't know the imagery that comes to me when I listen to it but yeah, I um yeah, I just wanted to tell you how much I I love your albums with her. Um, Thank you. Um, yeah, I I don't want to stray into just uh fangirling you. I definitely wanted to talk to you about Appalachia, and I wanted to talk to you about your sister, and I wanted to talk to you about Davy Graham. So I think I've hit probably the major points for me. Is there anything you'd like to talk about? No, all I want to say to you, Rady, all that's left to say is that you have one of the great voices. You are great, and it's wonderful. Wonderful that you exist. Oh, you're you're going to make me cry. Yeah, I'm I'm crying myself. I can't describe what it's what it feels like to have someone who's influenced me as much as you have. To actually, the fact that you even have heard my singing, (laughs) never mind like it, feels like a very strange kind of circle. Darling, what you do, you make it yours as well. You know. Then becomes you, you get out. Yeah. To us in this fabulous form. Thank you. Ah, oh, no, Lady. thank you. Honest, <laughs> honest to God, I've gotten so much from, uh, so much from your music. You know, I really have. Thank and, you. Um, yeah, I, I, I just want to say thanks. 
you know. And me too. <laughs> Thank you, Brady. Lovely to talk to you. Yeah, same. I hope I'll meet you in real life. Please come up and Next time. Yes. say hello. Next time. I'm battling my way through the crowd. I do. I'll, yeah, we'll, we'll get rid of the crowd. Yeah, yeah. Lots of love and love to the yeah. chaps in the band as well. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast, and thanks to Shirley Collins and Rady Pete for chatting. If you liked what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platform and check out all the goodness at TalkHouse.com. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.